paloma ya voló. Oh, oh ay, marinero navegó. Hi everyone, my name is Leticia Peguero and thank you for joining me on Out of the Margins. Hi everyone, I'm super excited today to welcome you back to Out of the Margins. Today we have a very special guest, so we have the opportunity to talk with Danielle Sered of Common Justice. Um, and really excited to have you, Danielle. Thank you so much for agreeing to talk with us today. Oh, thank you. I'm thrilled to be with you. Danielle, you know, we usually start these conversations asking people to tell us a little bit about themselves. Tell us a little bit about how you grew up. Sure. Um, So I grew up in Chicago and came of age in the 80s and 90s there. And that period in Chicago was the last time in our history that we saw the levels of violence that are sort of so famously on the news now. Mm-hmm. And it was the period that, you know, at the time we called the crack epidemic mm-hmm. and that I've come to understand, you know, in the way we come to understand history in retrospect, there was also the beginning of the rise of mass incarceration in this country in its current form. And so I grew up back and forth between a lower middle class neighborhood with my mom and largely poor communities of color with my dad. And in that back and forth, the clarity of um, the racial disparities that distinguish those neighborhoods from each other were crystal clear. Hmm. And the thing that you can't tell like a seven or eight year old child, you can't tell a kid that her friends, you know, her, that her white friend is a better dancer than her black friend. And that's why her white friend can go to ballet classes Mm. when that eight year old girl sees full well, which of her friends is a better dancer. Mm. And you can't tell her that one of her friends always has the lunch and the other doesn't because the other's mother isn't as hardworking when you can Mm. see full well, whose mother is more hardworking. And so those disparities were really evident to me as somebody who traveled back and forth literally every day um, across these lines. And as I grew up and saw more and more the impacts of, you know, both the way crack was hitting neighborhoods that um, my dad and I lived in and also how mass incarceration was hitting, you know, we saw people, it felt like people were disappearing. Um, It felt almost like a plague, right? People who were with us were suddenly gone. And because of the stigma and shame associated with incarceration, a lot of people sort of didn't quite say where they had gone. And it added for us younger people, at times an air of mystery about the absence of these people and other times an air of shame and sorrow. And so I saw these families struggle in the absence of their loved ones. And I saw those loved ones come home and for the most part come home worse for where they had been. Mm -hmm. Like I believe the thing prison targets in us most is the thing in me that suffers when I see that you're in pain. Mm. And in prison uh, is a direct attack on that fundamental human capacity. And many people, despite the horrific conditions, sustain that attack with their whole heart and mind and soul intact. But I'm humble enough to know that I might or might not myself be able to emerge from that undiminished. And so many people came home diminished by what had been done to them. 
And what we talk about professionally is recidivism rates were the reality of people coming home and harming people. And we all you know, start with the people closest to us and work our way out. And so I saw that devastation. I saw the difficulty of what I now call reentry, but of the struggle of someone reintegrating into a life after a forced absence from it and with all sorts of new burdens and restrictions on what they can possibly do in that life. And I sort of thought like all this seemed really terrible, but it must be good for the people that these people had hurt, right? Like that's what we were saying as a country. We were saying we did this for crime victims. And so I started paying attention to my own experiences of violent victimization, to the experiences of people around me. And it became incredibly clear to me that fewer of us wanted jail than anyone was saying. But even those of us who did, for none of us did it heal us. Like, the truth is that someone else's pain doesn't alleviate our own. It would be much simpler if it did, but it doesn't work that way. And so I saw that the story we were telling that mass incarceration served victims was a lie. And at the same time, I saw the inequities of the application of those punishments. So as a teenager, I was a teenager, you know, so I was, you know, partly like brilliant and passionate and excited the way teenagers were. And I was partly an idiot the way teenagers are. And so <laughs> I made mistakes. I did things that were silly and I did things I'm not proud of. And the punishment I received for those mistakes was so much smaller than the punishment that my black and brown peers received for the exact same actions. And the disparity, so I came to understand the racial disparities in the criminal justice system as someone who benefited from them. Hmm. And that meant two things for me. It meant first that I understood then that it would be my job to make those inequities my enemy and to find the people I could join with to fight those inequities and win. And that that would be my job for the rest of my life. But I also understood that the story that the criminal justice system couldn't act humanely when it wanted to was a lie because it did that for me. Hmm. So I say, like, not really jokingly, that the oldest alternative to incarceration in America is whiteness, hmm. um, that we have been diverting white children and adults from the worst parts of our criminal justice system for as long as those parts have been operative. And the important lesson in that is not only about structural racism, it's also about the fact that that system has everything it needs to behave differently when it wants to, that there is a vast amount of discretion available to criminal justice actors. And the evidence of that distraction is in, of that, um, the evidence of that discretion is in large part the comparable absence of white children from the worst parts of that system. Like the lower levels of incarceration, the lower levels of supervision, the lower sentences, the lower levels of pretrial detention, the lower levels of arrest. Um, that at every point where we see those differences, part of what we're seeing is biased decision-making on the part of system actors but we're also seeing system actors exercise their power for mercy and rational engagement of harm. They just exercise it disproportionately with white kids. And so as someone who knows from my own experience that the system has within its power, the ability to act humanely, and as someone who knows that the racial inequities in that system are my enemy, 
Um, the combination of that means that part of my job is to make sure that the most humane behavior of that system is equally available to everyone it ever touches. I, I want to go back to this word that you use, that when you were growing up, that it seemed almost like a plague. We could think about this obsession in the United States with mass incarceration and original sin of white supremacy and racism as a little bit like a plague. I'm just really curious as you you know, think about the way that it lives in our system and the, the way that it is part of the way, the air that we breathe, you know, how, how do you all think about that in, the, in terms of your work? It's a really interesting comparison. And I think one of the things that, in my understanding of how plagues happen is there's usually a period where the source of the illness is unknown right? Mm. That it's in the water, that it's in the air, and that the thing you see first is the symptoms. Mm -hmm. Uh, And you try and make sense of those symptoms. And the first explanations for those symptoms are usually wrong, right? And they include all sorts of things. They include things that implicate the the character and deservingness of humanity of the people who exhibit the symptoms. They include conspiracy theories about the symptoms. They include explanations that sort of fortify the current way of thinking about how the world is and should be. Mm-hmm. And I think we see all of those things in relationship to racism. I think we, we have a hard time surfacing the reality of structural racism and become much more focused on questions of individual bias. Mm-hmm. So that's like being concerned about the person's one particular person's really bad symptoms instead of whatever it is in the water source that endangers us all and lives even in each of us who doesn't demonstrate those symptoms as viscerally or as visibly. And so when we think about um, what it takes to transform our our use of incarceration in this country, to transform our responses to violence in this country, We understand that, of course, on the one hand, that will require a lot of policy changes, right? It will require changes in legislation. It will require changes in the exercise of prosecutorial discretion, changes in police practice. But it will also, and in some ways more essentially, require culture change, right? It will require that we finally contend with the core mythology that drives mass incarceration, which is this story of an imagined monstrous other. The idea that there is somebody who is not quite as human as we are, who is inherently dangerous, and from whom we and our loved ones have to be protected at any cost. That story is at least as old as our country. It's a deeply racialized story. It's in our water source and our air and our food, right? It is seeped into the very fiber of American culture. And any changes we make to policy that don't also come for that story, um, like reject that story, work to disprove that story, to refute that story at every turn, will make some changes along the edges, but it will leave the root system and the trunk and the branches of that old filthy tree Mm -hmm. fully intact. And so at Common Justice, we think both about developing strategies that can functionally and practically displace our current overuse of incarceration, but also in doing the work of shifting our narrative 
about violence and healing and punishment so that the underlying story that drives our culture and drives our behavior can start to make room for more humane and more sensible options. Let's talk about, let's dig into common justice um, and to the work. What, what is the work of common justice? Common justice develops and, solution, develops and advances solutions to violence that meet the needs of those harmed, do not rely on incarceration, and advance racial equity. At the core of our work, we operate an alternative to incarceration for serious and violent felonies based in restorative justice practices. We do work nationally to ensure equitable access to healing to the full range of crime survivors, including young men of color. And then we do strategic communications work to help change our story about who is hurt, um, what they want, what they need, and what justice looks like for crime survivors. We do that because we think that the, the substantial reduction of our reliance on mass incarceration will require not only using incarceration less, but particularly when it comes to serious harm like violence, will require developing real solutions that can displace incarceration. Mm -hmm, solutions that mm -hmm. keep prisons promise in ways prison never will. And so prison promises a certain level of moral contempt, like condemnation for actions that are harmful. It is the way our society says we think something is wrong or it's meant to be. It promises accountability. Hmm. It promises healing to victims and it promises safety. The problem is it doesn't do any of those things that it promises, right? Mm -hmm. That it mm -hmm. fails to communicate the serious moral contempt for harm, especially because it locks up millions and millions of people for a wide range of things that range from serious harm to absolute nonsense. And so you see in the literature evidence that prison produces diminishing returns and at a certain point of use crosses the line to become criminogenic rather than productive of safety. Mm. Meaning at a certain point, it increases rather than decreases danger. That's what happens when you overuse it. You can think of it like a medicine to some degree that is fatal at overdose levels, mm. even if it's helpful. The problem with that analogy is that at no stage in the process is it anywhere near as helpful as we have come to believe it is. It fails to hold people accountable Punishment and accountability are not the same thing. Punishment is passive. It's something someone does to you. Accountability is something you do. It requires that you acknowledge what you've done, that you acknowledge its impact, that you make things as right as possible, and that you become somebody who will not commit that same harm ever again. Almost none of those things happen in a prison context. Not only because there aren't programs that support it, but because the very structure of prison is designed to support people understating their guilt, to separate people from the people they hurt, and to diminish their access to any tools that would help them make right, from service in their community, to contact with people who they could help transform or whose pain they could answer to, to the availability of making enough money that they can pay restitution, in every way, prison runs contrary to accountability, even as it is our centerpiece of punishment. Prison also fails to keep its promise to crime survivors. So in our alternative to incarceration work at Common Justice, we only take people who have committed crime into the program 
if the victims of their crimes agree. And of the victims who are given that choice, 90% choose common justice, 90%. It's a stunning number. And in part, at first I thought it reflected a, a larger ethos than I understood of compassion and mercy and forgiveness. And while those are presents, that is not the main thing that drives that number. What drives that number is this sheer unfaltering pragmatism of crime survivors. At the end of the day, if you give a survivor a choice between something that they think will produce safety and something that they think will not, no matter how angry they are, no matter how hurt they are, no matter how afraid they are, and in some ways because they feel those things, they will choose the thing they think will generate safety. There is no one it is more difficult to persuade that incarceration works than someone who lives in a neighborhood where incarceration is common. When we talk about high recidivism rates, we have to understand that people who live in communities where that recidivism happens see day in and day out the failure of incarceration to deliver on its promise of safety. And for crime survivors, that's central to their well-being, to their healing, and to their sense of justice. Mm. And in that sense, prison's failure to fulfill its, that third obligation, the obligation of safety, is profound. Like there's all this research that demonstrates that prison can be criminogenic, that someone who is incarcerated can be more likely to commit further harm than someone who committed the same exact crime but wasn't incarcerated for it. And that shouldn't surprise us. Um, those of us who are in the business of ending violence, and I count myself among them, know that the core drivers of violence on an individual level are shame, isolation, exposure to violence, and an inability to meet one's economic needs. I think it's fair to say the core features of prison are shame, isolation, exposure to violence, and an inability to meet one's economic needs. It means our central response to violence in this country has as its very foundation precisely the things that we know create violence. That's not what a culture that wants to end violence does. And so we as a nation have to take responsibility for choices we have made in the face of all evidence to the contrary that have put people in danger that have blocked access to healing, that have diminished safety, that have diminished accountability, and that have failed our moral obligation to the people of our communities and our country. Part of how we reckon with what we've done is by developing solutions that fulfill those promises, that actually meet survivors' needs, that actually hold people accountable, that actually generate safety. And the direct service work at Common Justice aims to do that. So in bringing people together with those they have harmed, in facilitating an accountability process in which they make as right as possible for what they've done, and in supervising those people as they fulfill those commitments, we create an actual structure for accountability that is consistent with the interest of safety. And at the same time, we work deeply with the survivors of those harms to help them come through what happened to them and in their lives. Let's talk a little bit about accountability and how that plays itself out in the work that Common Justice does. At Common Justice, we talk about accountability not as saying sorry or being sorry or feeling sorry, but as doing sorry. Hmm. What does remorse look like as a set of actions, as a way of living? Right? Not just as a way of being or a way of feeling. 
So for some survivors, apologies are really meaningful. Acknowledgements and validations of what they survived are essential. For some survivors, what is most essential is concrete actions of repair and change. And so what we believe at Common Justice is that when we hurt someone, we owe more than to just apologize for it. We owe it to make things as right as we can and to become people who won't commit that harm against that person or anyone else again. So we owe the labor of repair and the labor of transformation. Common Justice's model is, has sort of two dimensions to it. One is our violence intervention work. We have an intensive 15-month curriculum designed to address the core drivers of violence so that participants who come through the program for hurting people reflect on the values and experiences and expectations and beliefs that mm -hmm. undergird their decision-making about whether or not to hurt people and are engaged in a process of transforming those choices. And then at the same time, they go through a restorative justice process with the people they hurt. Mm -hmm. And in those circles, with those they've hurt, and with each of their respective support people, they reach agreements about how the responsible person can make things as right as possible. On the whole, those agreements tend to include three categories. One category that is about repair to the person who was harmed, things like restitution and apologies. One category that is about the transformation of the person who committed the harm, things like counseling, employment, education, job training. And one category that is about repair to the community, things like community service, leadership trainings, engaging with younger people who may also be on a negative path, those sorts of things. Mm -hmm. And together, those actions add up to a process of meaningful repair. And at their best, they contribute profoundly to the survivor's process of moving through what happened to them. Why does common justice focus on, on people that have, uh, yeah, have committed violent offenses? Tell me a little bit about, about that. At common justice, we choose to address violent crime in this larger movement to end violence and mass incarceration. I think for three core reasons. Um, one is that we know we will not end mass incarceration without addressing violence. Mm -hmm. Part of that is a moral and strategic question. It mm -hmm. relates to the way in which our justification for prison at the scale we use it, no matter who is actually incarcerated, our justification for an system of incarceration as large as the one we have is rooted in the fear of violence. We don't give up good roads and good hospitals and health benefits and decent schools so that we can lock people up for petty crime. Even if in fact we do that, it's not what we sign up for. We sign up for a reduction of those things in exchange for prison because of our fear of certain people. So from a narrative standpoint, a political standpoint, a philosophical standpoint, it is our ideas about violence, about the people who commit them, about the people who survive it, that most drive and solidify the place of incarceration in our culture. But it's also just a numerical question. More than 52% of people incarcerated in state prisons are incarcerated for crimes of violence. That means very practically that you are not seeing reductions of more than half. 
unless you deal with violent crime. It's just not possible. So any reduction of our use of incarceration as we know it will require that we deal with violence. Mm -hmm. The second reason common justice focuses on violent crime is because we hold ourselves accountable to the people who are harmed by violence. And if you ask anybody who has experienced violence, who has lost someone to violence, even who has witnessed serious violence, they will say that the most important thing for us to be able to address effectively is violence. And when we understand prison to be not only ineffective, but dangerous in its relationship to violence, when we understand it to not only be insufficiently preventative, but actually productive of violence, then if we are answerable to survivors, the first and most central type of crime that we have to answer better is violence. And then the third thing we know comes less from our priority of ending mass incarceration and more so from our priority of ending violence, which is that we know we will not substantially reduce violence unless we also reduce incarceration. And that's because incarceration nurtures the drivers of violence, both on the individual and on the structural levels. They nurture shame, isolation, exposure to violence, and an inability to meet one's economic needs and people. But they also nurture the things in communities that make violence likely, the disruption of families, the diminished economic capacity of a community as a whole, the instability of people's um, educational and work trajectories, all of those things that we know to be drivers of violence on a communal level are exacerbated by our use of incarceration, which means there is not a pathway to the level of safety our communities deserve without reducing substantially our use of prison in this country. How do we get over this love affair with incarceration? So I think breaking what you describe as America's love affair with punishment probably includes three separate things. Um, one is that a lot of that love affair with punishment has been nurtured in crime survivors' names. We love it because we've, told, we've been told it's what victims want and deserve. And increasingly, we know that's not true. We've known that at Common Justice for a long time. We see that in the 90% of victims who choose Common Justice over prison for the people who harmed them. But we also increasingly see it in the national conversation. So a recent national poll by the Alliance for Safety and Justice demonstrates that crime survivors favor rehabilitative options over prison by a margin of three to one. So when we actually ask victims what they want, when we ask the whole range of victims, not just the narrow swath who have thus far been engaged in the conversation, we find a, not only a diversity of views, but actually a great deal of commonality around the prioritization of rehabilitative solutions and interventions that actually work in place of punishment. So I think shedding our notion that incarceration is good for victims will be extraordinarily helpful in breaking our love affair with it. Mm -hmm. The second thing that we know for what happens when we ask individual people who've been hurt if they want the person who hurt them to, be, go, to go to prison is we've learned a great deal about what changes someone's view about whether or not incarceration is appropriate. And I think the two things that change individuals' views that I think have implications on a societal level are first, validation that what happened to them is wrong, mm -hmm. and second, the presence of options. 
So first, they have to hear and believe that we mean it when we say that no one had the right to hurt them, that they did not deserve the pain that it was inflicted on them, that nothing about it was right. We have to say that and mean it unequivocally. And very often, our movements have fought incarceration by in some ways making excuses for harm or pretending that harm isn't as severe as it is. That is never the way forward out of it. It dishonors survivors it's dishonest, and it's also politically unproductive. The first step away from our punishment is to say, we know this kind of harm is unacceptable, and it merits a response that is equal to the seriousness of what it is and to the pain that it has caused, and that incarceration is not that response. And then that leads to the second thing, which is that people will only choose something else in the presence of options. If you ask people, do you want something or nothing, they will choose something over nothing a whole lot of the time because nothing is unbearable. You imagine there's like a really nasty hamburger stand in the middle of the desert with nothing for 200 miles. And if you see a line out the door for that hamburger stand and deduce from that that everybody loves those burgers, you're missing something. Right, you're missing the context of the extraordinary hunger that drives people there. You're missing what in this country is the 50% of people who keep driving despite how hungry they are. More than half of crime survivors don't even call the police in the first place. So people whose stomachs are rumbling, whose heads are hurting, who are dizzy with hunger, who would rather keep driving than eat those crappy burgers. And you see the people in that line who eat the burgers because their hunger is so much they can't stand it and they feel sick later and wish they hadn't. You imagine now that next to that burger stand, there's a Chinese spot and a pizza spot and a vegetarian spot and a halal spot. And all of a sudden, it's impossible to imagine that the line at the burger stand wouldn't diminish substantially. We cannot know, based on what someone does without options, what they will do with options. Hmm. As a people, we have only been given the option of prison as our response to harm. And we've chosen it over nothing. But as a people, when we have more options on the table, it is my deep faith, even in the face of the nastiest rhetoric that rises in this country, that we will choose the thing that is better for us. Not necessarily because we're generous, not necessarily because we're good, but because we are practical and self-interested and we don't want to be sick later. And then the last thing that I think is going to be essential to breaking our love affair with incarceration is to reckon with what we've done in our history, is to break our silence about the past, to stop the exclusion of conversation about slavery, about convict leasing, about redlining, about all the horrible things we've done as a nation from our public conversation and public responsibility. And I think only when we reckon with what we have done in an honest way, will we be able to be able to move forward together into doing something different? That's a great segue, actually, because I wanted to talk a little bit about you as a white woman doing this work. What do you see as your responsibility here? For white people in leadership in this movement, we have to do a couple of things. We have to be accountable to black and brown leadership, right? We have to be answerable to people whose lives are at stake in our work. And that sometimes means making decisions that we don't necessarily agree with or fully understand, but which we make because we're answerable to someone who has said that thing is right. Hmm. That's very hard for white folks in power to do because it involves um, 
exercising less power than we otherwise could, right? In deference to what we understand to be the appropriate leadership in our movements and in our organizations. Hmm. So it requires that we build that muscle of deference, even in the times when we disagree. Like when we follow black leadership in doing something we already wanted to do, that's not a big deal. Like that's still us doing what we want to do. <laughs> the real test is when we're able to be accountable to black leadership in times when the direction or priorities or strategies being set differ from the ones we would have set ourselves. Mm-hmm. We also have a responsibility vis-a-vis white people in the movement, but also in our families, in our neighborhoods, in our homes, to be honest, to have hard conversations, to talk about the history and persistence of racism in this country, to risk relationships, to risk access, to risk promotions, to risk accolades, to tell the truth. And we have an obligation to do the work with our own people so that the burden of that work does not fall on people of color. In the same way, the people who will have to end sexual violence committed by men are men. Uh They will have uh to stop committing it. The people who will have to stop racism are white people. People of color will leave the fight to end that and be very clear. But white people will have to behave differently. And so we have to do the labor with each other um, that is far less glamorous and far less glorious of grappling with the ways white supremacy shows up in our lives. And I think one of the things is for us to understand that white supremacy is not only about how we treat people of color. It also shows up in how we treat one another as white folks. So I believe the four core modes of white supremacy are control, punishment, exile, and extermination. Hmm. It's easy to see those in something like the criminal justice system, where we control people through surveillance and policing tactics. We punish people through a variety of sanctions and across the spectrum. We exile people in prisons and we exterminate people with the death penalty, right? Those are the things we, and that's the full range of things we do. Mm-hmm. But I think we can also see those modes in our own white families. We mm. can see what we do with each other, with what we do with our loved ones who suffer from mental illness, who suffer from addiction, who are imperfect in some way who somehow betray the story of our family's perfection and reveal that we're human like anyone else. We control each other and we punish each other and we throw each other away and we destroy each other. And we do that in our houses and in our neighborhoods and our lives. And we don't actually have to look to the history of globalization and colonization and mass incarceration and slavery to see the way in which the underlying belief system of white supremacy is a system that diminishes us all. And so as white people, we have, I think, a humanitarian obligation to be on the side of righteousness and justice to end the harm that is done for our benefit and in our name. But I also fundamentally believe that in doing that, we will also be released from a belief system that is harmful to us that diminishes our capacity to love and be loved, and that those things will become more available to us as we become more human. So at the core of uh, some of your work, I, want, I just want to bring up the word love. You brought it up just now. Um, but there's also this idea of redemption, 
you know, what is the human capacity to forgive? And so I'd love to hear, you know, some, some final thoughts from you on, on how, how does this all, right, the like day-to-day work of common justice, right, and, and keeping it moving and floating and, and working and hiring great people, how is that uh, really at the core about love of community and love of humanity? I think one of the things that violence does is that it ruptures relationships uh, and it can damage our capacity to give and receive love if we don't heal through it. Um, I think it can also diminish our capacity to believe in the possibility of another person's change Hmm. because it is when we are struggling with healing, it's hard for us to believe that we can change in the ways we most want and need to. And I think it connects deeply to the idea and practice of transformation. Hmm. And, you know, we sort of the corniest metaphor that ever gets used is about a caterpillar becoming a butterfly. Yeah. Yeah. And the thing is, if you actually look at that process, like if you watch the process over time as that happens, it's awful. Like the caterpillar <laughs> liquefies. It probably feels like death. It smells more foul than almost anything I've ever smelled in my life. It's disgusting. Not all of them make it. And the shape of the wings and all of that mm-hmm. isn't evident until like the very second to last step of this long process. And so when we think about transformation, what we are signing up for is that nastiness. Like we're not signing up for beauty in the narrow sense of the word. We're not signing up for something pretty. We're signing up for something deeply beautiful, but not something pretty. And we're signing up for liquefying and we're signing up for smelling bad and we're signing up (laughs) for a process that is hard, um, that is labor intensive, that crumbles what we know of ourselves so we can grow something in its place. And that while we are in that process, we cannot yet see the destination. I firmly believe that a caterpillar that is liquefying does not yet have any sense of what it will feel like to fly. Hmm. It just knows what it feels like to liquefy. And so I think when we talk about transformation, we talk about it like it's something soft, like it's hmm. like belongs to sort of lefty liberal whoever's <laughs> uh, say words like transformation. Transformation is one of the hardest and most rugged things that any creature can do. And so I think it means that having an appetite for transformation means recognizing transformation as something difficult and ugly that produces and is the only way of producing something beautiful. And so I think really becoming a culture that can protect and nurture healing and love and redemption and all the values you talk about requires becoming a culture that is willing to do the filthy, ugly, beautiful work of transformation. So we have been talking with Danielle Sered, who is a dear colleague and leads an amazing organization in Brooklyn called Common Justice. Um, Danielle, if people want to find you uh, online, uh, where can they go? You and Common Justice and know more about the work. Where, where can they find you? 
they can find us at commonjustice.org and on Facebook at We Are Common Justice and can find me on Twitter at, at Danielle Serrett. So Danielle, I want to thank you. Thank you for your inspiration. But more importantly, thank you for your vision, your work, and your courage. I, um, I'm always inspired when we talk to each other, when we see each other. But I think one of the things that for me has been really profound in knowing you over this past uh, decade um, is your boldness um, and your allyship and your willingness to, um, to be one of the wokest uh, women uh, that I know and to speak truth to power. So I want to thank you for your work. Thank you for your time today. Um, thank you for your vision and your courage. Um, and I want to close today by, with this quote. So here it goes. Tony Kate Bambara, uh, for those that don't know who she was, she was an activist, she was a writer, a professor, um, uh, a civil rights um, uh, a poet. Um, she died, I believe, in 1995. And she said, revolution begins with the self, in the self. We'd better take the time to fashion revolutionary selves, revolutionary lives revolutionary relationships. If your house ain't in order, you ain't in order. It's so much easier out there than right here. The revolution ain't out there, yet it is here. And I think this conversation was a conversation with a revolutionary woman doing revolutionary things uh, to end violence and to make us see the importance of breaking our silence about the past. Thank you, everyone. Thank you for listening to Out of the Margins. Uh, always a big thank you to our amazing team at Soul Design. That's SOL Design, who edits and adds music and makes the sound all good and smart. Um, and of course, to the team here at the Andrus Family Fund. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.